Today on a very special Inside the Ropes, we chat with our man on the ground in the United States, Benny Everill, and then have a ripping conversation with the genuine legend of Australian golf, Brett Ogle. Let's go. You're listening to Inside the Ropes, Australia's must-listen-to golf show with exclusive content from both home and abroad. Subscribe through your favourite podcast app or listen at golf.org.au. G'day everybody, welcome to Inside the Ropes, episode number 164. Great to have you with us. Uh, hopefully Victorians are happy and smiling given, that, given the fact that they can now get back out on the golf course um, guilt-free. Hopefully you enjoyed your rounds and hit them nice and straight. Uh, Brett Ogle's going to join us on the show, been looking forward to this for quite some time. We're going to catch up with Ben Everill over in the States to get a reaction uh, to the four ball that was played at Seminole. Before we get to any of that, uh, it's always a joy to say hello to Mark Hayes. Big fella, how are you? G'day, Murray. I, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to chatting to Brett Ogle. I reckon he's one of the, you know, he was, he's always says he's shy about coming on to these sort of things, but geez, he always gives a lot, I reckon. I'll make this prediction, Hazy, and I say g'day to you, Clates. Uh, good to see you again, Mike Clayton. I'll hey. make this prediction to the pair of you. By the time we get to the end of our chat with Brett Ogle, we, we'll all think that we've got at least another 50 things that we want to talk to him about um, yeah. by, by the time we finish up. I reckon that's spot on. Pretty engaging fella, isn't he, Clades? I mean, he's a, the, the meteoric nature of the Ogle career, um, it, it's, we, we know that there are blokes who come along, win a tournament, and then you know they, they, they've had their one moment in the sun. But this bloke sort of erupted quickly, got to a very high position rapidly, and then looked like he was going to be world-class. He looked like he was going to be a genuinely world-class, and was. But then it kind of it, it disappeared almost completely as quickly as it, as it arrived. Yeah, it was really odd. I mean, he was a tremendous player. He was one of the elite ball strikers in the world. He had shots that most guys couldn't hit. The, st- starting with that driver into the 17th green at the Bicentennial in 1988, it was an amazing shot where he made a three. And he played great golf for five or six years. And then he you know, had problems with his chipping. And it was, it was odd, really, because he was. I played with him after his career was almost over in 2002. And he basically hit the first 27 greens at the Vines in a row. I mean, he was, a, he was still an incredible player. The only two greens he missed, he putted off one. He was on a par five and putted off it. And, it, and he hit a flag with a wedge and the ball bounced off the green. And he hit every other green. It was incredible how, how good he was. Assuming he doesn't, Ben Everill's about to join us. We'll get over it. We're keen to get his thoughts on um, what's happened over in the States and the fallout from the, the four ball at Seminole. We'll, we'll get to Ben in a moment. But just one last one on Ogle. If, if the yips don't get him, Clates, if he, if, he's, if he stays mentally intact as a golfer, how good could he have been from, just from an Australian perspective? Where, where might he have ended up in the kind of roll call of Australian players? <clears throat> he might have been in the top 10. I would think. I don't think he's there, but he won twice in America and he, there was no reason why he couldn't have kept winning over there. But yeah, to be in the top 10, you've got to, be, you've got to do more than win twice in America probably. But he was a terrific player. I mean, fun to watch. He was, he was one of the looser cannons out there too. He, he, you know, he was pretty... He was, he was funny and he, and, he, and he said what he thought and he would annoy people at times, but he was, um, he was tremendous to watch. Great fun and... You know, he, and he played well in Europe too. I mean, he was a really good player. I mean, he was a terrific player. 
He would have been good for the game, Hazy, covering it. Yeah, there, never, there, there would have been a lot of colour and movement. There would have been a yarn or two. And, you know, there was always something happening around Brett Ogle when he was playing. Yeah, he always understood that it was entertainment and that people, you know, paid to come and watch. And, and um, you know, you can sense the enthusiasm he had for the game in his TV commentary after his career. So, I, I, as I said, I'm really excited to talk to him. I just I always... He, he, Every time I speak to Brett Ogle, I, I feel a bit of boyish excitement that, you know, some other players lack. So that, that always was magnetic for me as, in terms of Brett Ogle. There's one, the other thing that's funny to, to me is how guys like Finchy and me still play golf and love playing golf and would play every day if we could. And other guys like Grades and Brett don't play golf at all. Mm. Uh, you know, there's almost like there are two camps of there's just this other side that I don't get at all who just don't want to play and don't play. And yet Finchie plays, I mean, Ben, you'll know better than I, but um, pretty much every day, I think still. And I play a lot. And having said that, this lockdown was weird because I didn't miss playing for, you know, for eight weeks. It didn't bother me not playing. What I missed more was the people I play with rather than actually playing golf. But yeah, yeah, it's, um, Brett's one of those guys who just doesn't play, which I always think sad, but that, uh, that's the choice guys make, and that's fine. You know, it's... Well, perhaps we'll get back to that a bit later on. Let's be, bring Ben Everill in, uh, a name well-known to all golf fans. I, I'll just set the scene. We're, we're doing this via uh, Skype, and perhaps we'll, get, we'll just sort of get a visual snapshot of where we're all at in our respective lounge rooms or backyards. I put to you, Hazy and Clates, that if Ben Everill took his shirt off uh, he could actually be uh, channeling his inner Greg Norman right now. He's got the palm trees <laughs> in the background and the swimming pool behind him. I don't know where you are, Benny, but it's good to see you, mate. Thanks for joining us on the show. Yes, this is my backyard. Brilliant here in you know sunny California. The sun. It was actually raining this morning, which is really weird, but um, you know it's it's been good and it was great to have some golf back yesterday. We finally got some live golf, which this country's been screaming out for anything live. So to get some live golf was brilliant. And just want to put it on the record, Andy. I've shared a couple of rooms with Benny over the years, and uh, you don't want to see him with his shirt off. Not a good one. Yes. <laughs> so, Benny, uh, there was there was some actual there was some other live golf being played. Like a proper tournament was being played by the girls in Korea. But maybe we'll have a chat about that later on in the show. And the lack of coverage that that's received has been absolutely extraordinary. But, but anyway, by the by, out of um, out of the golf that you're referring to over there, you know, in, in Florida on the weekend. What's been the biggest takeaway from from the four ball that we saw? Uh, people seem to just love the fact that the boys looked like us, if you will. Like when we play golf, seeing uh, stars, Rory, DJ, uh, Matty Wolf, and of course, Ricky Fowler walk with their own bags, carry their stuff and have a little bit of banter was something really refreshing for everyone to see. And in fact, it's actually brought a lot of calls for that sort of similar sort of feel to be part of the return to golf here in the next couple of weeks or whether that not that happens is obviously probably unlikely, but uh, you know, having them all mic'd up, having all that sort of access and just seeing them be like a regular Joe really got people talking. Clades, how much difference does that make to ultimate performance? If you've got blokes wearing shorts, I know the shorts thing's an issue for you, but if they're just relaxed and they are carrying a lightweight bag and they're doing a bit of their own, how much of a difference is that actually going to make at the end of the day? In a tournament? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's going to cost them shots. You know, it would be slower because they've got to get their own yardages. It's, you know, it just, 
Yeah, I mean, caddies are great. And I, caddies are an important part of golf. You know, I, I wish we had more club level here, but on the tour, you, you can't really operate without a caddy, effectively. Mm. But, you know, they could, I mean, just for what they did yesterday, it was fine. Wearing shorts was fine for you know, carrying their own bag. It was great to see that. I thought it was a pity they didn't make it a little more inventive because the course plays so short. They should have played with eight clubs and it was a pity Tyler made was sponsoring it because they could have played with Wooden Woods and, um, you know, they could have made it more interesting than it was. But it was still great. I mean, for me, it was great to see the golf course. That was, you mm. know, it's a course that's never been on TV and it was fun to see it, how it played. And it was a pity it rained, so it was so soft, but beautiful course. I might ask you a bit more about Seminole in a minute, Clay, but just further to what Benny and Andy said, the shorts and the microphones, though, do they impact? I mean, the shorts shouldn't be an impacting factor, but microphones, does it interrupt players' trains of thought? Because I would have thought um, that should have been a, a regular, routine part of golf coverage for the last decade, and we rarely see it. Well, because they've tried it. They tried it with Tom Kite and someone else years ago, and Kite got caught saying something about someone was the slowest player in the world. It's never going to be... They tried it in Australia with Greg one year at Royal Melbourne. It's never going to be interesting, because players, are ne- they're always going to be worried of what they say. And, and the rest of what they say is not interesting. Mm. So, so the, the most interesting conversations are when they get the microphone close enough to hear the caddy and the player talking about the shot. But if the players know they're mic'd up, you're never going to end anything remotely interesting that, that, that they're going to say. And I don't, you know, the rest of the stuff we don't need to hear. Ben, there's, been, there's been some commentary um, critical about the, the way it was covered. And I, I'm led to believe there are a couple, like, different feeds that you could have accessed. I'm, I'm not sure I'm 100% right in saying that. But the primary feed, there were a lot of voices. There was the Donald Trump interruption. There was a whole lot of stuff going on, and it was busy. And, you know, maybe we didn't get quite as much from the players that we thought we were going to get. Just let that thing breathe a bit. Maybe, to Clates' point, that's the reason why. But from a, from a coverage perspective, what's been, the, what's been the analysis of that? Yeah, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head of a lot of things. There's been a lot of talk on all of those aspects, uh, I think, that in the end, it was a big learning experience for everybody involved, how to, how to deal with, you know, less cameras and less people and how much uh, announcers should be in or not in. Uh, we're not used to the mic players, like you said, so how much to rely on them. And I think Rory tried really hard to be a voice that could carry uh, through, but the others were pretty quiet for the most part. Uh, maybe Wolf uh, said a few things early, which was nice, but, you know, if the, if the announcers are going to fall back out, the players need to know that and step up, you know. So they're just, I think it's a learning curve across the things. And, you know, there's another match on this weekend. Maybe they've watched it and we'll see how they how it goes there with Tiger and Phil. I love the bloke standing on the on the green and the uh, the shootout, the 19th hole, standing on the green for the nearest pin <laughs> with the camera. That was magnificent. Yeah, see, a lot of the, when you don't have all the access to all the different stuff, like they didn't have fixed cameras on all the greens, they didn't have all that. Someone had to get capture it somehow, didn't they? So... And these things will be similar to what we deal with as, at least in the, the interim, when the PGA Tour returns in a couple of weeks, you know, there won't be credits. There will only be the odd tower here and there, and we'll have to get used to that. Um, as I said, I'd, I'd love to be able to see the players mic'd up, every single one of them, and used like the NFL has done here for years, where it's not used until after the fact, uh, or it's used down the track. So if you get something good, you can tee it up and, and go back to a highlight or whatever. That way the players are covered and won't, get, won't say things that they'll get caught out on. The thing about the thing about Rory's podcast last week with Huggy and Lawrence Jonigan was that it's so rare to get someone to speak honestly and openly and without fear of 
saying the right thing and it getting blown up into a headline, even though that something did. But um, there aren't many players who are that interesting and that articulate and, and are prepared to say stuff. But Rory was great. He's a great example of someone who gets that it's important to say things that are interesting rather than just wheeling out the, com- you know, the company line every time. Yeah, he's probably the leader in the clubhouse there, isn't he, folks? Just about on every topic these days. So, yeah, so, Ben, on that point, um, and I, I'm really interested in this. So you're, you know, you know these guys. You work with them on a on a daily, weekly basis. The American golf riding fraternity. I'm talking about, and I follow maybe a handful of them on Twitter. And and there's gen, there's a genuine sort of anti-Trump sort of um, theme that runs through a lot of their political correspondence that they put out on Twitter. Rory says what he says about Donald Trump and the politicisation of the handling of coronavirus. Is that going to be? Will that be blown up into something bigger in America? Uh, to some, to some degree, there was there was definitely some coverage of it. Um, as it is with politics everywhere at the moment, it seems there's you're either sort of in or out, aren't you? The the, the extremes of everything are, are very clear to see, um, which makes it so uh, difficult to to have any sort of political uh, angle to anything you do without potentially getting people upset or or the other way around. And I think um, over here now, he's a very polarizing figure, like you mentioned, but a lot of the, a lot of the PJ tour golfers um, would be on his side per se, whereas maybe the media are not. So it's a, de- a delicate balance there. Is there any, you talk about the fact that the PJ tour is going to return in a couple of weeks, you know, they're sort of, they're steamrolling towards that. Is there any um, moral sort of ambiguity about whether they should be doing this, given you know, commentary around it, given what's going on in America and the fact that the curve hasn't been flattened and in some parts of America the thing's out of control? Uh, that basically depends on where you live over here and, where, and what part of America you're, you're involved in. Um, and again, I said that America is very sort of segregated across states, um, whether they're blue or red states, they call them here, Democratic or, or Republican. And, uh, the Republican side of the argument is very keen to reopen and, and get things as close to normal as they can, whereas the Democratic side is a bit uh, more tre- a bit more trepidation on their side and their part. So wherever you are in the country depends on how people feel about it. But I think the appetite for any sort of sport is so high over here right now that even the people that are, are worried a little figure out, figure that there's hopefully going to be enough things in place to make this safer when they do return. And, and the tour has put out, like, we have a 45-page document or whatever that, that highlights every single thing that we'll be looking after to make sure these safety things are put in place uh, if we do start as scheduled mid-June. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about, Benny. I mean, it, just, it just seems like there's a more than a raft. It's more like an aircraft carrier of, of, of information that, that's going to precede every event. Do the players a do the players feel safe with it, and and b what's what's going to be the big takeouts for us all to keep an eye on when 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 you guys head all to Texas? Yeah, look, um, pretty much all players, as far as I'm aware, have have signed on to be to be fine with the the adjustments, if you will, that are there to take place. And testing is a big part of that. Um, they'll be tested before, during, and after being at events. Uh, you know, and obviously, if there's any hint of a positive test, they're just stood down immediately. Uh, so they've all sort of put their hands up to do that. They have no problem with that. Um, other things that they have to adhere to are the social distancing uh, situations, both on the course and away. They have to stay either at the uh, the 
a prescribed hotel in the area that the tour will have deals with. Uh, only sort of small exceptions to that are RVs like Jason Day. He'll be able to stay in his RV if he chooses to with his uh, family group. Uh, and then your own house if you happen to live in the area. Um, you know, little things like that are, are, are going to be run through all of this. And, and the players have been part of that process. So they signed off on it, basically. I read a couple of hours before we started doing this this morning, I, I saw there was posted um, a change to the US Open. We know it's been pushed back. And for the first time since I think it was 1924, I read that there'll be no qualifying for the US Open. It'll be a very different looking uh, US Open when we get there. Is it going to change? Well, how significantly will that change the, and this is a question of the three of you, but you go first, Benny, but how, how different will that make the flavour of, of the US Open coming up at Wingfoot? Yeah, it's a shame because we'll lose sort of a few of those great stories you generally get out of it, especially now that uh, Q School, if you will, isn't available to get straight onto the PGA Tour. So those, those great stories of someone coming from nowhere to be in a big event or be on tour now take longer. That's to get onto the, the Corn Ferry Tour or, or whatever it might have you. So the, the US Open qualifying was that last one of those last cool factors um, that we'll miss. But it just means that the, the field will be very, very strong. It'll, it'll obviously be filled with top-level golfers, and um, it'll be a great championship no matter what. Oh, so how do they feel the? Sorry, how do they feel the field? Is it just going to be straight off the world rankings, or same it's a as good question? TPC. Yes. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I assume that the USGA will be putting together uh, factors, and and that might depend on when we make a return as well. It could be guys who are in form coming in. It could be the world rankings. It could be a, a combination of both. Um, but I assume that it'll be based on trying to get sort of informed players. So if, if you were betting now, what chance do you think the US Open will be on in September? 100%, 50%, somewhere in between? Uh, yeah, maybe somewhere in between just because of where it is. Yeah. Um, but they have contingency plans to potentially move it if they wanted to, but I don't think they will. So, yeah, I'd say it's somewhere between. Mm. Around that fifty percent mark, it's just New York is is such a hotbed. It's a tough. That's a tough one to gauge. They seem pretty hell bent on keeping it at wing foot, just so they don't wreck the rotation for years to come. Benny, is that a fair comment? Yeah, they they they're doing whatever they can to try to keep it there, um, and not and not upset the apple cart going forward as more than it already will be. So further to what uh, how the field looks, Andy, and and the cancellation of things, um, the USGA today announced. Everything was off from a national competition perspective, except for the two main amateurs, the men's and the women's, and now the two opens, of course, the men's and the women's. Um, but there's going to be no qualifying for either of the amateurs either, um, or the women's open, for that matter. So my, my take on this is it's going to look like a much less international field mm. than it otherwise would. Um, you know, if you're sitting here we've talked about this previously with the last, last week I gave the IGF a bit of a bake because, um, you know, blokes like all girls, but blokes like Jed Morgan, um, basically are going to have a big chunk out of the end of their amateur career before they want, would, would expect it to turn pro. There's going to be a massive hole in the itinerary of the leading amateurs in the world who aren't American in the next, uh, well, at least a year and might even extend out through 2021 um, until things get back to vaguely normal with that tournament as well. So big big decisions being made because what happens obviously in the US impacts the rest of us. 
No doubt about that. Hey, Benny, we'll let you go in a moment. Look, that pool looks very inviting. And if we're over there, we'd probably be in it with you in a minute. But you mentioned Jason Day, mate. This kind of forced love. I know they're all hitting balls and they're all sort of grinding away to various degrees. But um, you mentioned Jason Day. I wonder whether you've got any insight into whether this downtime might be a good thing for him, you know, in the in the short to midterm. Well, 100%. I know I say that with all due uh, respect and making sure that um, – you know, be appreciative of what people are going through in these times. But he's been able to rest that back and 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 sort of get his practice schedule back towards uh, something closer to normalcy, if that if that makes sense for when he was at his best. Uh, he's so hopeful at the moment that it'll come good that he's planning to play almost every week coming out of the gate. He's going to play a very condensed schedule, more golf than he's played in a row in forever, like when he was very young. So, again, we'll see the proof in the pudding when he actually gets out there and has to do it under the heat of battle and, and, and four days in a row and everything else. But he talk, he's talking a good game, put it that way. He's talking up a big game at the moment. So he's not nervous about all the majors crammed in on top of each other, Benny? Uh, not at this stage. I mean, he knows that that's different to what he's, gonna, that he's used to handling, which is, again, part of the reason why I think he's going to try to come out of the blocks and test himself and see if he can do three weeks and how... He needs to manage three weeks in a row if that's going to be the case because he'll have the, the playoffs potentially and all that sort of stuff all in, in amongst there. Uh, he's like, well, I've got to build my back up and, I've got to, and then I've got to put it to the test. Mate, we'll let you go. You've made a lot of people at my home track uh, very, very happy with your tweet about Peninsula Kingswood uh, oh. during, during the week as well. There's a lot of people going, oh, that's nice that Ben said that about a little golf story. course. Yeah. Yeah, mate, I love that joint. I obviously saw it when we were down there for the President's Cup and I just had more fun than I had in a long time playing golf. Um, it just is my sort of, just for me personally, I love the imagination and, and greens like that where if I have a circus putt, I can still uh, make something happen with it. It's the strength of my game. The only strength of my game is sort of putting on good greens. So that was a lot of fun for me and, and I'd love to return and can't wait to. Well, maybe the four of us will head out and have a hit. We're lining up a lot of games of golf at the moment between us, so uh, maybe we'll do that one of these days next time you're down here, mate. Thanks for being part of it, and we'll look forward to see what it looks like in a couple of weeks' time when we start swinging the club in earnest again. Thanks for dropping by. Thanks for having me, guys. Good on Thanks, you, And Avril Australian covering the PJ Tour over there. There's obviously, you know, that is where all eyes are centred at the moment, isn't it, in terms of getting this going back on a competitive um, week-to-week basis. We're very, very keen to see what it looks like when we do get back there. Um, just before we get to a break, and Brett Ogle joins us, we, we talked about you know the four ball. Uh, Mel Reid was interesting. I mean, this was, you know, it became a bit predictable. Let's get you know three Americans and, and Rory, you know, number one player in the world. We'll get him involved. And then we got the next one coming up with a couple of old quarterbacks and a couple of old pros who are going all right over the journey. Mel Reid was pretty critical of the lack of imagination that's been um, displayed uh, in terms of from an inclusive perspective with the thing we saw on the weekend. Has she got she got a point? Did we miss an opportunity a bit with this? Well, it was an ad for TaylorMade. They basically made a, as far as I can tell, made a $5 million donation and got four hours of TV time with their four best players. Well, four of their best players. That was mm. essentially what it was, wasn't it? As far as I so can tell. Had nothing to do with the good of the game. No opportunity. No, that, that wasn't. They could have got two women who were sponsored by TaylorMade if they wanted to. I mean, there's plenty of female players out there who carry the TaylorMade brand on their bags. Well, I think it, 
was a it was what it was. It was a chance to make it way more interesting. I mean, obviously, when Taylor made sponsoring it, you're not going to get them playing with wooden drivers, but that would have been really mm. interesting. Mm. They should have played with eight clubs. That would because the courses. I mean, it seemed to me there were a lot of par fours. They were just seeing drives and wedges out. So eight clubs, wooden drivers, two women, would have been much more. I think more interesting. But, uh, but you know, but but it was tailor made buying four yeah, hours of yeah, TV yeah, time to yeah. advertise their players and their stuff, which was that's fine. I mean, it was a you know, no one's going to complain about someone giving five million dollars to the nurses. But you know, I, I think Mel had a point that it could have been more. Certainly, could have been more interesting. But I don't want to see next to who, who, who's playing next week. Peyton Manning and who, 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 yeah, who's the other bloke, guy? Some bloke from Tampa Bay. I don't know who he is, but yeah, yeah I just zero interest in that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really, I really like that. Clates was struggling to find that name there, Andy. That, that says it all, doesn't it? Really, for you? Oh my goodness! For those who uh, you won't be able to see that, but Andy just stood up to reveal a unbelievable Patriots jersey <laughs> thing that he's wearing at the moment on Skype. Um, right, just just further, I mean, Clayton, I do want to ask you about Seminole, which looked to me brilliant, but I do, uh, oh, Andy's really testing the limits here with the wardrobe that he's trotting out here. Uh, I'd, Seminole looked awesome, but just further to, to what you're saying, I mean, if the PGA Tour was, was fair income about um, getting women involved and, and promoting that side of the coverage, They'd have set up at least an end of year event with the LPGA many years ago. They've talked, they've talked and talked and talked about it, and they've never got over the line. The champions event maybe in Hawaii at the start of the year. There's a hundred ways they could have got it involved. Yeah. I just don't think they legitimately uh, have that as a, as a you know a priority interest. No, it's a pity because I think the Presidents Cup would be a better event with six men and six women. I think that. Toronto champions in Hawaii would be great if you included the. I mean, it's still a tiny field, right? I mean, it's still, it's still only, it's less than 100 players if you include the 25 or 30 or 35 women who win each year out there. So the Vic Open shows how much better golf is when the women play. I don't, they're doing it in Ireland with um, Noel Horan's tournament up there in Northern Ireland. It's just, and they tried one in the somewhere that, where the. The women in Europe played with the Champions Tour players and the Second Tour players, That's I right. think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Morocco, I think. Morocco, yeah. Yeah, Oman or something. But there's, there's just such an opportunity. Not every week, obviously, but surely we can do it more than... Surely they can do it once in, in, in America. Well, especially when it's not, you know, high priority like, like yeah. yesterday's event was. I mean, it, it, it's... It's it's not on their radar to do it. I just don't think they think of it as a, as a first port of call. It's just a... Oh yeah, maybe we could have done that. Maybe we should have right. done that, but it's never a priority. Well, we know we know how good the Korean women are in particular. We we know the world of golf knows how good they are, right? And this is just a sort of sideways sort of zag for, for what we're talking about here. But you know, competitive four round golf return to Korea on the weekend, uh, high quality field with high quality play in really difficult conditions. You go to any American golf website. And try and find a coverage of the KLPGA Championship that was played. You know, just go and there are you'll get you'll you'll wade your way through fifteen different takes on Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. Uh, you'll get twelve different reviews of someone's book, some American player's book. You'll get a hundred 
um, different takes on the four ball that we saw in Florida on the weekend. And you still might not find a word about what happened in Korea on the weekend. It's in Korea and they're women. And the, the, by and large, I think the broader, well, the male or male-dominated uh, American golf community, I don't give a, I don't give a stuff about any of that sort of stuff. I don't, they're not worried about inclusion and gender equality and spreading the game, and they're not worried. It's that's not their fight. They don't give us, and maybe they don't have to. Maybe that's not their, but they don't care about that. The tour's job is to maximise the income of the members. Of course. Of course, what the, what the Premier Golf League's argument is that the base of the European Tour and the, and the American Tour is to maximise the income of the members. Whereas their, their argument is we want to give the fans what they want, which is if you're a tennis fan like me, you watch the four majors a year, but you don't take much interest in anything else. And most people who are, in, who are on, the, um, on the edge of golf watch the four majors and nothing else. So what the PGL's what the PGL's what the PGL is about is rather than supporting a membership of 160 players, giving the fans who watch golf thing uh, something to watch every week. I don't agree with it, but you know that's always been the issue with the tour. Is it, it's about maximising the income of the members. Yeah. So why would the PGA Tour want to move something away from a week that maximises the income of their members to include the women? No, it's a good. I mean, it's a good point. But, I mean, but, but what do the, what do the fans want? Well, maybe the you know a, a right wing chauvinistic bloke from a blue state in America or a red state. I, get, I always get that mixed up. So might <laughs> might give a damn about watching women play golf. But I you know I think it's just more interesting when you do. And talking about Seminole, it would have been a lot more interesting to have the women play off the same tees or just a little further ahead and hitting five irons into the greens and six irons rather than wedges. Yeah. So, you know, there were so many ways. That thing could have been more interesting. How much better did it just look? I mean, I, I know. Well, I take what you're saying. It played short, and the wind wasn't up, and it played relatively sort of easy, given it's the soft. But how much, just visually, how much better did it look than 99 percent of the stuff you see on a weekly basis out of the states? Well, yeah, but because what you see, what we see on our TV from America is not American golf, really. It's certainly not the best of American golf, with, with a few exceptions. American golf's in a, in a way, the problem is that so, so many of these courses are almost impossible to get on, but Fry's Head and Sandhills and the National Shinnecock, LA Country Club, Fisher's Island, all those re- amazing bits of architecture, Crystal Downs, that never get to be seen on TV because no one goes there. You know, there's small memberships, there's small, small clubs, small memberships that aren't, in, that aren't interested in the PGA Tour, which is, which is the opposite of Australia, where the best clubs are desperate to have tournaments. Kingston Heath, Victoria, Royal Melbourne, Royal Sydney, the Lakes, Karen up, they all, uh, the great courses we play in Adelaide for the Women's Open, Royal Queensland for the PGA, they all want to have tournaments. Whereas in America, it's the complete opposite. So, so, so it was great to see a course like that on TV. And it looks, it, it's a sandbox course, really. Mm. To me, it looks much more like Kingston Heath than it does a typical US PGA Tour course. No rough, fairways into sand, um, you know, hard greens, bunkers right up against the greens, difficult bunker shots, windy on the sea. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting place to watch golf played. To me, it looked like uh, you and Donald Ross had conspired to make <laughs> a beautiful course, Clay. So it was just a, 
it was magnificent. The wasteland, everything looked like the, um, I guess, what is it, the west side of the freeway at the, at the lakes. It was beautiful. Yeah, it did have a lot of that to it. So it's, um, yeah, and people are critical of, you know, stuff. We've done either sandy waste everywhere, but you look at Pinehurst and Seminole and how well, well, Corn Crenshaw restored them. Well, they certainly, I, I, I've never seen Seminole, so only on TV, but uh, you know, Bill and Ben certainly restored all, all of those waste areas at Pinus, and d- Trump thought it looked awful. You know, he tweeted when the US Open was on, and the place looked terrible. He's <laughs> but, a moron. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a, um, you know, that I, I love that look. I think it looks natural and tremendous. And it, it, there's a Trump. I sound like Trump myself, but um, the, the that massive wasteland between the second and third holes at the lakes looked a lot like that big June at Seminole. If you've got that land and you can build that stuff, it's a beautiful way to play golf, I think. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. Who'd, who'd rather hit sideways? Hey, try and find your ball in a thicket of, you know, overgrown rubbish. And then if you can find it, you, you tear your shirt trying to get underneath the thing to hack it out backwards or sideways if you can get a swing at your, at your ball. Who'd rather play golf that way compared to knocking the ball 120 metres out of a sandy wasteland or, or, or even further if you're good enough to yeah. get it. Who'd rather play? I mean, why? I, I don't, for the life of me, I don't understand why anyone would rather play golf in the former of those two options. But anyway, that's we've had this chat before. Yeah. Um, what I, Before we get to a break, Brett Ogle about to join us, what's going on with the short course at um, Barn Boogle? Where are we at? We've been reading a bit about that this week. Well, I, last time I was there, I walked around it with the guys who were building it. Bill was Bill Corb was about to come out. He was due out the next week, and that all got stopped with the virus. So it's, uh, there, were two, there were going to be one or two. They haven't made up their mind with the second one, par fours, short par fours. The rest par threes. I think they're, they're deciding between 12 and 13 holes. Fantastic. And it's above, for those who know the course, it, when you're playing the eighth hole at Lost Farm, it's to the right of that, up above that. So they're tremendous little holes. It's, it's, it's uh, Trans my Trump in um, <laughs> Trump's infected us all. Uh, it's um, <laughs> it's going to be a really fun, quirky place to go out for an hour and pitch the ball around at night and in the morning, and uh, it's brilliant. And then I think we're going to do a massive Himalayas putting green at Bamboogle, out, out the front of the cabins at Bamboogle. So I was down there with Mike DeVries, this, the, the, the um, well, well the, obviously last time we were there, and. So Richard's always adding to that place. So people keep talking about the third course. I'm not sure he needs a, a big third course, but with a Himalayas and a short par three course, it's, it's just another great addition to you know, the best public facility in the country, easily. Clayton, it's about as much similarity as between you and Donald Trump as me and Al McPherson. So I, think, <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to accuse you of that. Right. Uh, we better get a break out of the way. Brett Ogle's about to join us here uh, on Inside the Ropes. That after this. Let's go back Inside the Ropes with Golf Australia. Welcome back to the show. Great to have you with us. Uh, and it's been too long. In fact, I can't. It's the first time, Hazy, the first time Brett Ogle's ever been on this show? First time. Great oversight of mine, Andy, because he's uh, one of the great men of Australian golf. It's very bad form from my, from my on my account. Incredibly uh, disappointing on our behalf to suggest that this is the first time he's been on, but it's uh, a joy to have him with us. Uh, Brett Ogle, thanks for joining us on Inside the Ropes. 
Yeah, Murray, Hazy, Clates, good to be with you guys. Now, Clates, that pool table behind Ogle over his right-hand shoulder, if you and Ogle to play a best-of-seven series, what would the scoreline be? 4-0. Out. Sweep. In about to, 10 minutes. To Ogle, <laughs> to Ogle or Clayton? Yeah, I'm, I've ne- I could never figure that game out. Right. Hey, it's like Ozzy like Moore. By the way, Murray, it's a snooker table. It's Sorry. not a pool table, my friend. Now, listen... <laughs> You've got to get it right. It's sorry. Stupid. Completely my bad. I'm so sorry about that. Yeah. And I'd smash Jimmy. He's, he's hopeless. I've seen him I've seen him play on pool tables before. He's not good. How's um how's the isolation existence been treating you, Brett? What's what's we're sort of asking everybody that question when we first joined them these days. How have you been coping? Well, it hasn't probably really bothered me that much. Um, since I finished uh, Fox Sports at the end of twenty 2018, 2018, um, I haven't done as much travel, which has been really good. So it hasn't affected me much at all. I take the dog for a walk across over in the park over there every day. I do six or seven Ks most days and, uh, and then come home, get in the garden. So it hasn't affected me much, <laughs> to say the truth. My life's still the same. <laughs> um, what what was – can you tell us what – I mean, you, you were such a – part of our life as golf fans in this unbelievably blazing and meteoric career that you had. And then as a commentator, you were sort of, you continued your presence in the Australian golf kind of community and psyche. What happened at the end of, you should be still doing that show, all due respect to people who are bringing us the golf on Fox. Why did that, why did that end the way it did, Brett? Well, to tell you the truth, Ricky, my wife, got cancer and uh, she had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2013 and 2014 and I was starting to I was starting to think about finishing uh, the golf show then and I just signed a three-year deal through to, it must have been the end of 2017 then I think it was and um, and I was I was going to finish anyway and then it came in 2017 and I, I just didn't want to travel anymore to Sydney I was up and back to Sydney at least twice a week every week for 47 straight and in the end um, Ricky's health and, and look I needed a back operation uh, which I ended up doing in 2018 all's good now I had a disc fusion just things things panned out that way and look I was writing the whole show from top to tail and it took a lot of time to do so I just had enough I, I just had enough and basically as uh, Clates will tell you travelling is not all it's cut out to be 15 and a half years of doing the show I got sick of it so that's pretty much why I quit in the end um, and how's, how's Mrs Ogle now how's Ricky now yeah, she's good. Uh, she's clear, which is good. She's just passed, uh, just gone uh, five years, so all clear. But they, they, they take a spin of your blood and they've stored it in Moravan. You pay a, uh, a quarterly um, thing to store your blood. So if it comes back, because some cancers you can't get whacked again with chemo, and the one that Ricky's had, you can't go again with chemo. And uh, the success rate now in the one that Ricky had, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, was about, I think, 70, I think it was about 72% or something like that. But now if it comes back again, we've got storage of her good blood cells. Um, it's amazing what they do now. So anyway, her health's good, although she's had eight more operations since she had cancer. She had eye operations. And, mate, we've been through the wars. <laughs> it's just been one thing after another. Um, so, but all, all's good now. So do you have a connection with the game? Any, do you have an official ongoing connection with the game anymore? Not really, no. Um, no, just the love of watching it, um, but not talking about it anymore. I, had, I don't do radio anymore or, or that. So 
And I tell you what, after all these years, it's just nice not to get up in the morning and not have to think about golf every single day because I've done it like Jimmy's done it for for every day of your life since you were since I was well uh, eleven when I started golf. It's been in my life every single day, and even when I retired from from professional golf in two thousand and two. Um, I was in the media, so and then obviously writing the golf show and, and being involved. I had to be on golf every single day, so it's really just nice to just take a break after 35, 36 years of doing it every single day. It's just nice not to get up and think about it every day. Mm. So do you play? No. Not at all? No, only when I get paid, Jimmy, corporate days, business days, which have, uh, which have been a lot less over the past, uh, past couple of years, so... Uh, back them off a bit. I do a few charity days, but I don't play social golf. But I've got the yips so bad, honestly. Oh, it's just, just as you know, I mean, well, you probably don't know. I mean, I've talked to you about it quite a few times, but it consumed me to try and find a way to chip and putt. I, in the end, I, you know, in 2002, I was chipping left-handed on tour and it just became it became uh, such a job for me and it mentally just burnt me out and I just got I got sick of playing and and today even if I had a bucket of balls and put them out in my backyard I've got a synthetic green out there um I I still yip I still yip I yip when I play snooker it's just I, I don't know it's just it's in my head it's in my brain and I and I twitch and I don't know it's um so golf nah not really did you still love the game when you walked away from it like that Brett I still love the game, of course. It's uh, it's given me what I am today. Um, I still I still love it. I still love talking about it. I still love um, being out around it, talking to kids, talking to young people about. You know, I often get asked um, what it takes to be a, be a world class player and be a winner and and that stuff. That's still nice. I don't do it as much as I used to, uh, but still out and about. People still um, see me, and um, I still do a lot of drum and golf stuff in stores. I'm still involved with drum and golf. I still have the ambassadorship with them, which is ongoing. Um, that's been, uh, what's that been, 16, 16, going on 17 years now. Um, so I still have a lot of kids come up to me in the in the ranges, in the drum and stores and stuff throughout the year. So um, I still have that sort of uh, side of the game. So we might talk to you a bit about this more in a second, but for someone who is a natural, you are the quintessential natural sportsman. You are... Hmm pick everything up and everything just falls into place. You look like a professional. Is it sort of really um, galling that that's the way it ended or, and has it translated into other sports that you, you can, you want to pick up again? Oh, I wouldn't say, look, it took, when I, when I retired in, in 2002, I, it took me a while to get over not being out there on tour again. Um, it hurt because um, being a winner around the world and beating those guys that are out there, um, you know, it hurts when you're not out there playing anymore. And it took me probably about five or six years to get over that, but I'm well and truly over that. And, and look, as I say, nobody watching, I still have the yips. It just hasn't gone away. I've tried everything. I spent I spent 40000 US dollars on trying to reprogram my brain in America to try and get over this yip thing, and I, I, I couldn't do it. Um, but look... As as sport, I grew up in a in a country town called Goulburn, um, which which is a, a, a great a great town for sport. I played hockey, I played table tennis, I, I ran, I was a sprinter, um, I played soccer, I played AFL, I played rugby league, I played rugby union, and then I and then I took up golf. I played everything. I had a crack, and that's the best thing about Australia, and that's why we're so strong around the world in sport. 
our, our country towns and our cities are just every week, every week, you just go and play sport. That's all you do. You live for sport. So I live for sport. And yeah, look, I long legs, quick runner, picked up sport pretty quick, you know, lanky giraffe, um, but always picked up a sport pretty quick. I wasn't awesome at it, but I, I practiced hard at what I was doing and got pretty good at some of the, the games I played. You, you were awesome at golf and you did pick that up quickly. Like that came to you, you know, the, 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 the history tells us that you started in 77 or 78 um, within five or six years or maybe seven or eight years. I can't remember the exact timeline, but you're fully exempt in Europe. Um, a year or two later, you've won a couple of times in Europe. I mean, this was a crazy ascension. How, how, um, how early on did you realise that this was a game that you were you know, particularly good at? When I was 11, probably just grade grade uh, six just started. I made around the corner. I played hockey with, and I played hockey for a long, long time uh, since I was like five. And um, he asked me to come down and have a whack of golf. And I went, golf? Elpis sport, mate. Where do I want to go down and play golf? So anyway, I did one afternoon after school. I didn't have any other sport on. So I went down there um, and with his golf clubs, and I cracked a couple and I thought, gee, wow, this is good, and then topped a few. and But I didn't have any air swings but because uh, I had a hockey swing, and it was similar. So anyway, it grew on me from there. But then a guy named David Merriman came to Goulburn, and he was the pro at my golf club, and he took me under his wing. And there's a little bit in between that. Noel Matthews, I bought a set of, uh, set of clubs. Mum bought a set for my brother, and she bought a 3579 for me because he got a, a set. And Noel Matthews' um, wife taught me at Bradfordville Primary School. Anyway, I went down um, and I kind of got the bug. I started ripping a few of these. And anyway, Merriman came. He was a pro at Tully Park Golf Club. Took me under his wing. And by the time I was uh, 14, I was playing off one. But after school, uh, and I was still playing hockey, but I'd get on my bike and if I didn't have hockey practice so I'd rip down on my bike with my clubs and I'd um, buff some golf clubs in the back of uh, the pro shop and then uh, vacuum the floor in the pro shop and then David and I would go and play nine holes until dark nearly every day and, and that's why I gave hockey up when I was 15 and concentrated solely on golf but I was already down to a low figure because David took me under his wing and he was coaching me and doing one dollar clinics on a Saturday morning as well so the coaching really helped me uh, and my golf, my golf swing was a hockey swing, and golf just consumed me. I mean, it just took over, like it does with most people. You just love it, and it just gets hold of you, and you just can't let go. And and that's how that's how it started for me. You must have given a lot of old blokes the urits at Tally Park, mate, going from thirty six or whatever it was to one in two years. Yeah, look, they they um, I started with a with a funky old handicap nine hole comp and a junior comp, but. Um, as soon as I got an 18-hole handicap, it was 32, and I went to one really quick. Um, it was about two years, um, somewhere around there. But um, I, I really enjoyed playing. Sunday mornings, um, early birds was awesome. Now, 7 o'clock, freezing cold, minus 6 or 7 in, in, uh, in Goulburn, frost on the grass, two pairs of socks, a couple of gloves, beanie. I used to play the the – the old man's cup on, on Sunday mornings. I love that. Um, early birds, it used to be called, so I'd tee off with the older blokes, and it was it was really, it was one of the comps that I really enjoyed playing. I don't know whether they had the shits with me on. <laughs> <laughs> so when did Clayton and Ogle, when did you two become, um, when did you two become aware of one another? Well, Jimmy, I remember. 
I remember the 1985 Australian Open where you were leading after two days or one day or something. Was that the th- it was a three-day Open, wasn't it? First round got washed out, I think, at Royal, wasn't it? Yeah, so you played with Greg, what, the last day? I did, yeah. I shot 67-70 in the first two rounds and I was tied for the lead with Greg in the final group on Sunday and the wind howled and I shot 82 and Greg shot 74 and still won. Do you remember that, Jimmy? Was that the day he hit that driver off the deck at 14? No, that that was the in 1988, the second last hole when. Um, no, 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 the, when, no. When Greg hit the driver off the deck on the 14th hole, which is the fourth west, was that that year? He had like an amazing. He made three. Oh, he did. No, nobody's ever reminded me of that, but he did. That's right. That's <laughs> it was right. unbelievable. Yeah. Like it was in a howling wind. No one hit the green for two, and Greg hit. Driver off the deck onto the green and made three, and that was kind of the end of the tournament. Yeah, I think. You, you know, it's been since 1987 since I've spoken about that, but you're dead right. He did too. Nobody made the green, and he just ripped it, dropped no, straight on and made three. That's exactly right. Good yeah, memory. Horrendous day. You have got the best memory in golf, though. I've never met anybody like you, Jimmy. But, th- you but then a- you're right. But, but then you go to 88, and you hit that amazing driver at 17, where you finished. Third behind Roger and Hale Irwin, right? So yeah. Roger and Freddie, Freddie Couples. Couples. Yeah. Freddie, and you're, yeah. You're playing with Irwin, right? I was, yeah. Uh, the second been... second last group, yeah. He wouldn't have enjoyed you beating him, would he? Well, he had me all day. And he's chat, 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 chat in my ear, Hale Irwin. <laughs> chat, 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 chat. And then all of a sudden, 17, I've, I've ripped my wood, wood onto the old bladder ball, uh, onto the green there, and I've drained it. No more chat. Didn't even shake my hand at the end of 18. He just walked, he walked off. And I thought, oh, you sour old cat. It's all right when you got all day long, you're in my ear and trying to beat me down. And all of a sudden, I got him by a shot. And let me tell you, the last hole was hilarious because I drove it in the right rough. And I knew I needed a birdie to get into a playoff. And I drove it in the right rough. And then I got a fly with a seven iron. And it's just sailing. And I've just gone, oh, no. And you see the you see the crowd part in the grandstand. The balls are clank, clang, bang, boom. And anyway, I chipped it down to about twelve feet, and I made that putt. And it was just like, and just see Hales. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I my entire career. I won the Tasmanian Open earlier that uh, earlier that year, and I won eighteen thousand dollars for that tournament back in that day. Bicentennial finished third. I got 90 grand and I thought, man, oh, man, I could buy the world. I'm rich, so rich. All right. <laughs> so so when you're doing that, when you're playing uh, and, and mixing it with absolute world-class players and you're only about 20, you're only about 20, 21 at this stage, you know, and you've really only been playing amateur and pro top level sort of amateur pro golf for, I don't know, by the Bicentennial for maybe eight years and by that Australian Open that Clates is talking to you about for about five or six years. Did you know? Did you have a, a real sense that oh, I can I can play with these guys? Like I'm, I'm maybe not going to be as good as them, but I, on any given day I can beat any of these guys. When I when I started to to uh, come through, 1983 was. I'll just take you back to 1983 because this story, Mari, just blow your head. So I was working at Cowra Golf Club with Merriman. I'd gone to Cowra, and I was working in the pro shop. So I decided to enter for the Australian Open. I thought, yeah, I'm ready. You know, I've come off being the ACT Monaro Senior and Junior Champion of Champion, um, leading the, the 
the stroke average. Anyway, I decided to drive down a pre-qual for the Australian Open. My pre-qualling was at Commonwealth Golf Club. I'd never been to Melbourne before to play golf. This was my first time. The, the Open that year was going to be at Metro. So anyway, my first taste, Commonwealth Golf Club. So anyway, I got in the car the afternoon. I had to finish work because Merriman was playing in the Australian Open that year. So I had to finish work and lock the pro shop. I drove down. I slept in my Datsun 120Y about two hours north of Melbourne at one of those pullover drive drive things. I woke up at like 4 o'clock in the morning. I had a 7.30 tea time at Commonwealth. So I drove into Commonwealth. I thought, all right, playing good, playing ready, ripping it. I shot 88. Oh. I hit it everywhere. Commonwealth killed me. And back yeah. in the day, Commonwealth and Huntingdale and Royal, and you couldn't get your ball from the edge of the fairway because the thick gorse, <laughs> the bush on the edge of the fairway, you couldn't even get underneath to get your ball. I shot 88. I got back to my dad's in 121. I drove all the way back to Cow and I thought, gee, maybe I'm not cut out for, for professional golf. Maybe I'm not as good as I am. But anyway, I stuck at it in 1984. Um, and then 1985, I was a member of Castle Hill Country Club. And Greg and the Australian Clates will remember this. The Australian PGA came to Castle Hill. And I was a yep. club champion at Castle Hill in Sydney. Anyway, um, it was a PGA, but I was a club champion. So they drew me with Greg Norman in the Pro-Am to get a taste of, oh, I thought, oh, wow, playing with this my first time, playing alongside big player Greg Norman in a Pro-Am, even in a Pro-Am. So I'll, I'll ask him what it's like to be world number one and what it takes because that year Norman in 1984 um, lost to Fuzzy Zeller at Wingfoot in the US Open, but he, should, he probably should have won. But anyway, that's another story. So I get on the first tee. On walks Greg, I'm playing with Mr. Mr. Toshiba and Mr. Holden, both Japanese dudes, and I'm standing there and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, wow, here comes Greg. He shakes the hands of, of the two Japanese blokes and I'm standing there, went straight past me and I went, <laughs> well, maybe he thinks I'm a caddy. I'll, I'll introduce myself. So I'll go, Greg, hi, Brett Ogle, how are you? Playing with you today, club champion of Castle Hill. Nice to meet you. And he goes, yeah. So, right. So I ripped it off the first. I smoked it past him. And Clates will tell you this. Anybody that hits past Greg, he hates it. He just hates it with a passion. And I was always nip and tuck with Greg in length. So if I'd smoke one uh, and he'd smoke one, more than likely I'd probably just get him with our Woodwoods and our Ballada golf balls. But anyway, um, so I went 18 holes and hardly got a word out of Greg. And I'm asking him, what's it take to be number one? What are you going to do? How many balls you got to hit? Didn't give me much time at all. And I thought, oh, Okay, so we've had a frosty relationship of our whole career, me and Greg. Um, none better than, the, the, than um, the Australian Open when I did my kneecap in 1990, which well, you blokes will talk about that. Uh, he gave me an absolute flogging in the newspapers. <laughs> what did he say? I can't remember that. What, what, did, what did he say? Uh, well, I was drawing the first 36 holes with him. I'd won the Australian PGA at Riverside Oaks the week before. And... Uh, on the 18th green, the 36th hole, 30, 36th hole at the Aussie, there's a pond to the right-hand side. And anyway, I putted my – I tapped – I missed my putt and I tapped it out and I had a look at him and he's wandering around the other side of the hole to measure his – it's about a four-footer, probably five-footer. So I've played the crowd and I and they're all going – you know, it's late in the afternoon, it's about five o'clock, so they've all had a tank load of, you know, the, the, the amber fluid and the grandstands and they're all screaming out, throw us your ball, throw us your ball. So I pretended to lob it and lob it short into the pond. And they've gone, boo, boo, <laughs> boo, and they're giving me a res. Anyway, um, Greg's putted out and uh, we were still we were still tied at that stage and we were doing okay. And uh, anyway, Saturday morning on the, in the Daily Mirror in Sydney, the Daily Telegraph, whatever it was, back page, Ogle slams 
uh, Norman Slam's Ogle's attitude. I thought, what? So I'm reading the article and he, he's bagging me about throwing the ball into the pond and playing the crowd and I put him off. I went, you kidding. So anyway, I see him on Saturday, Saturday morning, and I walked up to him on the practice field. I said, what's your, what's your problem, Greg? Like, you know, you've got an issue? He said, oh, mate, you're, you're a bit out there, you know, throwing your ball off and you put me off. I said, mate, you were around the other side. You haven't even got around to the backside lying in your putter. And I said, as if you wouldn't play the crowd. That's what we're here for, mate. We're here to entertain, are we not? That's what you do. I said, what's the difference? Because I do it now. You, you've got the shits with me because it's all not all about Greg. Anyway, I gave it to him anyway. Who do I get drawn with after the third round? Sunday morning, third last group? I got Greg. Oh, and I'm going, oh, I'm up that evening on Saturday night. Who am I playing with? And they go, oh, you're Greg Norman. You're off at 122 or whatever it was. I go, oh, it's just, no, no. I get on the practice fairway. Here comes the shark. And he's walking down and, you know, he's got, I don't know, what, five or 600 people following him, as they always do, you know. More people watch him put clubs in the boot of his car and probably follow me back in the day. But, um Anyway, he walks on the practice fair. When I, I shouldn't have said this, but anyway, I said, oh, you and me again today, eh, Sharky? And he goes, yeah, play shit, get a shit draw, huh? <laughs> get anything at all, you idiot. Anyway, I wanted to dig a hole in front of all the people. I was embarrassed. So anyway, um, we get around to the 71st hole, and I've got Greg all day, and we're, ch we're now chasing Morse and Parry who have posted a number, I think five under or something, and I'm two back with two to play. And uh, 17, I carve it in the right-hand woods. I've got Greg by shot. And uh, and then I I try to play this miracle cut around the big gum tree about five paces in front of me and drilled it straight into the tree and it comes straight back and hit me in the kneecap, fractured kneecap. Um, get a doctor, get a doctor, Ogles hit the deck. Oh, man, oh, man. It's a guy in the crowd, they're holding a string of six-pack of Heineken. Well, I've just bought a six-pack here. They're frozen. So they ripped the pack of Heineken's on my kneecap. <laughs> ricocheted over into the trees, like 30 yards back in the trees when I got up and I chipped it across the fairway into the lake and then I took a penalty drop and I hit it on the green. I ended up making nine on the hole and I ended up finishing sixth. I still got a check for like 16 grand, which, you know, still I had to finish. And um, Greg's down the green there laughing at me. And you can see some video of it. Um, and uh, Greg's looking down. I got my pants rolled up and Greg's laughing at me and whatever. He didn't come over to me there. He waited down the green and said, what happened to you? And I told the story. He's fiddly himself laughing. But anyway, <laughs> it's amazing. It was an amazing moment. So if I could fast forward, um, and I'm only using your major championship performances to ask you this question, but... You had two good finishes in 95 at St Andrews and in the US Open, and I've forgotten where you were in 95 for the US Open. Was that, was that when you were playing your best, do you reckon? Was it, can you pinpoint a time in your life where you go, yep, that was that six-month, 12-month, that year, that season, that summer, whatever it was, that was when I was playing my best golf? No, I think, I, look, I, from, from 87, I turned pro in 85, and – I didn't. It took me two years to, to win, but I was still playing okay golf. But I just couldn't finish off any tournaments until um, '87. I won a couple of times on the South Pacific Tour, but '88 um, I won the Tasmanian Open. But my best golf, I probably I play, look. It's played till tell you. I was either I was either hot or I wasn't cold. I was not interested. Just missing cuts. Um, but when I was hot, I played good. But '92 was probably the, my best year because I'd uh, I'd won the World Cup. 
Um, I led qualifying school in America, and then three months three months later, um, I went on to win uh, Pebble in America. So I had a purple patch there for about uh, probably three three years, ninety two to ninety five, where I where I played really good, and I won quite a bit through there. But probably ninety two, I, I was playing the best golf. I it's funny because I went from I went from a, a draw to a fade. I, I went to a really neutral grip with my left hand and I, I started fading everything and cutting everything, even a left-hand pin. I'd work it at the flag and I'd work it away from the flag and I rarely missed the green left and made double. And this is the thing I figured out. So of the 13 wins that I'd won around the world, nine of them came from hitting it left to right. And it really wasn't until 90, 1990 that I'd, I'd started working it left to right and I lost this wideness off the tee. I used to, as Jimmy would tell you, when we used to play, <laughs> I could get seriously, seriously wide. That's why I'd shoot 88 at Commonwealth and, and high scores. Um, but then I started to learn to hit it one way and it really turned me into a, a, a worldwide winner and a much more consistent player, although I was never a great putter. Didn't work hard enough on that. I always worked too hard on striping the golf ball. Always a really good ball ball striker, but short game was crap. I really never had a really good short game, and I think in the end it, it really showed out in in my uh, in the to- tournaments that I was leading and lost. wasn't getting it up and down. And the other guys like Jimmy, Peter Fowler, I watched their short games. Man, could they chip and putt? Wow. Yeah, but I mean, we had to, but um, well, well, Chuck certainly did. But I remember we played <laughs> together at the Vines in might, might have been two thousand and two. So we get on the first hole, par five over the water. Everyone lays up. So Brett hits driver one iron just short of the front of the green <laughs> and then puts it off the back of the green. The pin's on the back and he puts it off the back of the green. Did. And the next green he missed was the ninth hole the next day. <laughs> when you drop, So you've hit 25 greens in a row. Next green you hit was you're driving the bunker at nine hit it out, par five, hit a wedge shot that hit the pin and bounced off the green. So in 27 holes, the only green you missed is where you putted off one and you, and the ball hit the pin and bounced off the green. Yeah. So you don't have to chip very well when you do that. Well, that's true. But if you haven't got a short game and you're shooting 70, 71 or 72, but you, you're right, Jimmy. I mean, the, my strength was always blistering par fives. I could always get to them in two, no matter – there was very rare that I couldn't get to a par five. So I hit it on two-putt birdie. Pretty easy, easier game when you're doing that, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, but you hadn't played for a while then. You'd been away or something. You hadn't played much and you're out of America and everyone thought, wow, oh, Ogle's done. Or, and you came out and just, I mean, I think you finished third or fourth in that tournament. But, you know, it looked like, well, this guy's got plenty of great golf left. <laughs> and certainly from Tita Green, there was no one better. Well, 25 out of 20, well, essentially 27 out of 27 greens on a pretty decent golf course. is not do any better than that. I tell you what saved me though. I, 19, 1993, when I won Pebble, I was putting the Langer method. And that was working really good. I was hot with the, the Langer method, and yeah. that was really good. And then I started to yip my forearm where where you'd hold the putter down your forearm. I started to twitch that too. That's when I went to the long putter at the at the International in Denver, Colorado, in nineteen ninety three. I got an old zebra head, cut the shaft off. Um, jammed a driver shaft on the inside of it, um, molded it together. And anyway, I went out the next day on Friday. I built that that Thursday afternoon of the fir- after the first round because I took it with me and um, put it together. I had 28 putts on the Friday. Yeah. 
and I ended up changing to the long putter, and that prolonged my career. But the chipping in the end, I was chipping. I had my hand turned so far under to, to try and hit it, and so far outside the back foot, I tried to hit it before I could even think about it. But that just got in the end, and you saw me, Jimmy. I was chipping left-handed in the end. I I tried to re retrain myself to chip left-handed, but it really it just would have taken too long to do that. But um, my ball striking was always my saviour in my whole career, which. Uh, thank God it did. Well, I wouldn't have been out there that long. Brett, did you ever take the time to look back and appreciate what you did? I mean, you you know, you obviously won in Europe. You won on the US a couple of times. Can I read a leaderboard to you when you were the best individual player at the World Cup in 92? This is – you beat Ian Woosnam in a playoff. This is the rest of the leaderboard. Couples, Forsbrand, Langer, Nobolo, Love, Johansson, Els, Jimenez. I mean, that is the who's who of world golf in that right that, that snapshot right there. Did you take time to look back at that and go, you know what, if I can just breathe here, I've got this? Do you know, Hazy, I, as a, as a young kid coming through, I was always taught to believe in your own ability. You can beat anybody on a given day. And as I came through and I was playing with the likes of Jimmy and Ozzy Moore and uh, Shears, Bob Shear and Stanley and, and, uh, and these guys here in Australia, and I was beating them here at home, and then I started to, I went to Europe and got my, card in Europe, I was playing with Montgomery. You get belief when you start beating these guys, right? So I never had any fear of beating the best in the world. And come 19, come 1992 when I won the World Cup, I was already in, in the prime of my, my playing days. I, I knew that I could beat any of these guys. I'd learned to win. Um, I'd learned to lose, which is what you do in golf as all members playing golf. The best thing about golf is you learn to lose before you win in this game. You can't just crack up and win every week. Um, so if you can mix and get used to losing and winning, then you'll be a lot better and a lot more consistent player. So when I got to America in 1990, 1990-1991 and I'm looking down the practice fairway and I'm looking at these guys, couples, love, um, Tom Watson's, Hale Irwin's and looking at these guys looking up and down the range, and I'm going, I'm watching them hitting balls and I'm going, I hit it just as good as you guys. I'm thinking, you know, I flush it as good as you blokes. What's, what do you do better that, that – I know you're older than me, but what do you do better that I, that I can better myself on to be as good as you blokes and win majors in the world of golf? And in the end, it came down to short game. They make more putts at crucial moments. I had my times. Jimmy's had his times when he's been out on tour as well. Uh, he's thrown putters up in the air and they've dropped down in the wind. <laughs> I play that relentlessly. I love it. It's the best thing I've ever seen in the world of golf ever. <laughs> that it took me to New South on the 14th, 15th, 16th, 14th green. 14, yeah. 14 oh, I just play that religiously. It's on YouTube. I just tell people, watch this. Anyway, I had no fear <laughs> of beating these guys, and I'm sure Jimmy wouldn't have either or Aussie or any of us Aussies. Um, you start fearing these guys and you think they're better than you, you'll never win. Um, so I went over there and, yeah, the leaderboards looked good back in those days. Hazy, they were, they were, there was a lot of good players around. That leaderboard was good there. The Bicentennial was a really good leaderboard because there was Ben Crenshaw and Hale and Freddie Couples and Love and um, obviously the Aussie boys and um, Jumbo Ozakis and Jack Nicholas and, mate, that was a leaderboard to – I've got it over there on the wall. Wow, look at that leaderboard and you go, <laughs> Yeah, all right. <laughs> so you you just mentioned, and I didn't have this question down, but Brett, you've just mentioned, you know, Clayton's infamous moment where you've spoken about the ball ricocheting off the tree back into your kneecap. 
I would put to you three fellas that they are two of the three most infamous moments uh, and calamitous moments in Australian golf. Who, who would be, question without notice, who'd be the third? Who's sharing the podium with you two uh, for a moment? You've got one, Hazy, have you? Yeah, oh, well, John Daly's got to be a ranking contender. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or does it have to be an Australian player? Oh, I'd prefer it to be an Australian, but that happened in Australia. So, yeah, that that, that probably counts and we can't come up with a better one. But Mark oh, Hartwood on the green. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you need to call him when he helicopters his putter into the into the water? Or are you talking about John Daly as, as a whole? As <laughs> <laughs> a unit walking around just <laughs> John Daly. What, are you talking about one specific moment? Oh, like, I was talking. I was talking about the eleventh at the uh, at the lakes right. when he when he hit all the balls in the water. But you know, it could have been it could have been the eighteenth at Coolum too. What was yours, Craig? Too, remember? You talking about Greg or or Daly? Daly. Yeah, well, Greg had a moment there, as Jimmy will remember. He wouldn't. He refused to go to the edge of the lake at fourteen at the at the lakes as well and drop a ball. And he took about twelve or eleven. He had about four right. in the water there. Is that right? He did. He made eleven or twelve or something. <laughs> he refused. So there's four. Mine, Clates, Daly, and Greg. <laughs> what else you got, Jimmy? You got anything else? Well, um, I would say Mike Harwood leaving his bag on the green in 87 when he had a chance to win that Open. That was, who was playing that day. That was a horrendous day. Sorry? Guess who was playing with him that day? He's playing with Ozzy. Was he playing with you as well? It was me, Ozzy, and Hearts. Because <laughs> me and Ozzy talk about it all the time and um, it's funny because Mike Harwood then, uh, what, oh, not long after that, started getting the, the nickname Exacta, Wind Cheater. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody started to call him the Exacta. <laughs> oh, wow. So that was hilarious because I turned to Hordy, my caddy. He looked at me and I looked at him and he allowed to, because he took time to put the bag there and he was waiting for the ball to roll. And that's why he put – because the ball was oscillating, so he put the bag there. You're allowed to block the wind. I don't know the rules of golf. I'm pretty crappy. Anyway, Graham Nightingale, I think it was Graham Nightingale back in the, the day, two holes later, came out to talk to us all on the on the fairway. And um, we all got together and he said, Mike, I believe you've had an infringement back on the back on the seventh. And Mike goes, what? And he said, you put your bag on the green and – um, anyway, so from there he got the penalty and he's copped the name exact of Windsheeter. That was that was hilarious. <laughs> That's a great nickname. That's a beauty. That's one of the can best. I, can I ask this one quick question? Um, why why Jimmy? Do you recall the story, Jimmy? Well, I, I don't know where it, it came from. I used to. It's a Scottish word for mate, really, Jimmy. If I couldn't remember a caddy's name in Europe, I just called him Jimmy. Hey, Jimmy. They were started calling me Jimmy. So a few guys. Uh, Brad and Grades and a few guys still call me. They're not many, but the guys who are um, – another guy from Goldburn, Elkington. So so I was going to ask you, was he around when you were starting out in Goldburn or was he already gone by then? What a story about Elkington I have here. You ready for this one? So when I started my junior golf, my first games were not – as I said, I had a nine-hole handicap and they ran these little Saturday junior comps down there um, just, just before Merriman came, about 1970. What was I, 14, so 1970, 78. And um, anyway, I won this comp. They gave me a stupid handicap of 30, whatever. Anyway, I blitzed the comp, blitzed the junior comp. Anyway, I'm on my way home and I, I'm walking across the 80th fairway and behind me comes Stephen Elkington, a guy called Tony Wilson, who was now Elkington was two years older than me. 
and Tony Wilson and his brother, another Wilson, a bit older than me, well, they kicked the crap out of me, left me bleeding, ripped my shirt on the middle of the 18th, on the middle of the 18th fairway walking home. So anyway, I got home and I had blood, blood lipped and cut head and torn clothes. They called me a cheat and they were saying, you cheated, you cheat, and they're kicking the crap out of me. So anyway, um, got home and mum wanted to call the police and I said, no, don't, just, just leave it alone. Just, just leave it. So mum was going ballistic. So anyway, in 1986, Tom Ramsey got me an invite to the to the international at Colorado, as Tom did back in the day. He, mm. he a, handpicked a couple of Aussies to, to go play on this US tournament. Elkington, I confronted him at, at the tournament, Jimmy, and I go. Duh. So he was um, he was at Goulburn probably. He came from somewhere else to there. His dad was a train driver or something, I think, or something like that. And he, he was, was a bank manager in, in Wagga Wagga. So he went from Wagga to Goulburn, I think. No, 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 the other way around because he went from oh, Goulburn okay. to right, okay. and went to college. But he came from uh, Grenfell or somewhere or somewhere like that. And anyway, they were in Goulburn for about probably a year and a half and they moved on. But um, I confronted him and he goes, um, uh, I don't remember that. And I said, well, let me tell you, I do – when you got a blood blood lip and a bleeding nose and torn shirt and all this crap, mate, you remember what happened? You and the Tony, uh, you and Tony Wilson and Jeff Wilson, three years kicked the crap out of me. Oh, I don't remember that. And I said, well, I do, mate. You're a low life. Anyway, <laughs> never, never again, never again. I'm and too well. And isn't that amazing? Because the two of you, I figure, like you finished T11, he finished, he nearly won that uh, Open Championship that that we were talking about a bit earlier in '95. Yeah, Daly won that in '95. It was blowing, blowing its uh, maggots off over there. The last, uh, well, every day it blew so strong. And I had eight pars and a bogey on the back nine. I just couldn't get the ball in the hole. Um, and I was still in contention there with nine to go. If I shot a couple under, I probably would have been right, right in the mix coming up the last. But I just couldn't make a birdie. Um, so that's when Constantina Rocker got in a playoff daily and. Um, he drove it short of the green and Constantino, I'll never forget this. Uh, Jimmy will probably remember it as well. He's sitting there and he's kind of playing, got putted to a chip, to a putter to a chip, and he took the took the chipper out and flubbed it right in front of him and then took the putter out and hold it from the battle up onto the green from about 40 feet to get into the play. I was just, oh, that was comical. That was there's another good one right there. So, so is there if I was to ask you, Brett, we have to wrap this up at some stage, but if I was to ask yeah. you your your one fondest moment in golf have you is, is there one that that bubbles above all others oh look i've had a, i've had a, i've had a lot of great i've had a lot of great times in golf as i said a while ago golf has given me what i am today brett ogle i mean could have been claude sydney beasley if i wasn't adopted so um and taken to goldman when i was six weeks old too my whole life could have been a whole lot different so i've got a lot of i've got a lot of things that stand out i've got a lot of great times and i've got a lot of um uh, downtimes, but I, I guess um, you always go back to your first big win, and I think the Tasmanian Open, I shot 67 in the final round playing alongside Brett Johns, who Jimmy knows really well. He's here, he's here, he's era, um, and he was the number one Tasmanian amateur, and the last day of the Tasmanian Open at the Tasmania Golf Club, it was blowing a hurricane, and I shot five under. I striped it, and I beat Johnsy by a shot. But that round of golf was probably one of the best rounds I'd ever played in my entire life. Five under in a howling gale at Tasmania Golf Club, one of the best courses. Uh, and I know Jimmy played there. <laughs> I don't know whether you remember that last day, 1988. Well, I, finished, well, I, I got second money because I finished because John's <laughs> an amateur. But 
It was the whole week was horrendous. I mean, it was the it was the worst week of wind I ever played in. It was like a, that fifth hole up the hill was a three wood every day. The par three, yeah. it was just it was horrendous weather. Oh, five the par three. That's right. It was a wood. She's on smoke. One iron and keep it keep it down low, and the ball was climbing up like a seven four seven jumbo jet on me. That old ballada. Because we played it around the other way. We finished on the ninth yeah. hole. Good yeah, pass. So- I remember playing around now. Yeah, well, we 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 played the we played the other way around that week. They they almost always played the other way, but yeah, we do our, so, our golf days. Uh, we've done the last uh, oh three out of the last five years at um, at Tasmania Golf Club. It's good to go back. Good to go back there. So I, I guess that probably that'll probably stand out. And probably uh, what about you, Jimmy? Same for you too. Stand out moments. Your first wins. Got to be best in it, I guess. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah, the Vic Open, but yeah. I mean, you were. I mean, you could hit it. You could. I mean, you say. You know, Brett talks about. He's being modest. He talks about. I can play with any of these guys, but the reality is, when you see the best players in the world, they're better than ninety-five percent of the other guys. And Brett could hit it like the five percent who could really hit it. So you could. Oh. Really, you know, I mean, you could legitimately walk on the range next to Freddie and say, "That, that guy's no better than me." But not many guys could do that. Yeah, well, I, I, I give it. I, I tell you, it's my golf swing that got me to the to the swing. Big, wide arc, dropping it inside, and yeah, I tightened it up over the years, and that's when I became a lot more of a consistent player. But um, give it to hockey. I, the people that I don't know whether you play with people that play hockey, they've got an idea on how to hit the golf ball because of their hockey yeah. actions. Oh, it's a similar kind of thing. So that helped me big time. Just had to tighten up those those nuts and bolts around the edges. It's funny you mentioned that, Clay. So I was, this has just come back to me. I don't know where we were. I don't know what tournament it was, but I was watching you one day. I was in the gallery, and you were left off the fairway, pretty baked lie, had a tree in front of you with some low overhanging branches. Um, the green was down the left-hand side. It was a bit of a sort of a gentle dog leg right to left. And you had to get this – there's a two or three on, I reckon, you, hit. you had to hit it low under these branches that were about 30 metres in front of you. Then you had to get the thing up. There was water down the right somewhere, trouble down the right, and you had to work it right to left. And you played this shot. It was like it was just ridiculous shot. It was a, you hit it perfectly, and it did exactly what you needed it to do. Was there a shot? Were you one of those players who thought that there, there wasn't a shot you weren't prepared to take on? There wasn't a there wasn't a shot you thought you couldn't make. Is that Jimmy or me? No, no you. you. No, you. Oh no, no, just um. Change my grip a little bit, change change the ball in my stance, and hit whatever you want. But I tell you, Mari, you, you say shots. Um, back in the day when we were coming through, you played played everything, just played everything. And Europe, Jimmy hit the best low ball, man. I I just used to Beautiful. love watching him oh, drill it. He just pump it low and just Thank just you. drill it. And the worst thing about Jimmy and why he never won more is because of his temper. He had the most wickedest temper yes. I've seen, and it stopped him from winning a lot more. He got so frustrated with his golf game, but he was a pure ball striker. I used to watch him all the time, and I loved it. He used to drill the punch, punch that ball, and it would come out, and it would just go, Vroom! and I stand there and just love watching him hit it. Um, but his temperament, he, he had the worst temperament man in the world. He was a narc. He was narky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you, you're not getting any argument from me. <laughs> but I, I, Jimmy was the same. He used to work at um, – he used to work at whatever. He, he could work the ball too. Um, 
he's a good ball striker as well. But you, whatever shots you saw, you played um, and you learned to – you didn't change much, change your grip a little bit. I changed my grip, my left hand a little bit to whatever shot I want, turn the face in or hook or whatever and move the ball a little bit and, and felt it. And Jimmy was the same. He, he's the same as a field player. We're both, both very much feel, feel players. Um, whereas other guys have got to grind at it and think about hard what they've got to do. We just grabbed it, put the ball here and pff, hit whatever shot. VJ's another one. Here's another guy that just, whatever you wanted, you just did it. We better let you go. We've only got so many uh, hours of the day and so many minutes in this podcast, Brett, but it's been fantastic to have you on. There's a thousand other things we could have spoken to you about. So um, we'll keep those for another day when we get you back on the show. Thanks so much for coming on and being part of this. We'll definitely uh, do part two, I reckon. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, I've, got plenty. I've got all the time in the world, so if you want to have a chat, it's been good to talk to, to Jimmy and, and Bounce. You too, Mari. Good to talk to you boys. And, uh, mate, any time. Call me any time. I'd love to have a chat. And we've, got, we've got a whole lot more stories. So, And I'm sure, Jimmy, we can bounce off each other for the people out there. hope you enjoy the podcast. And uh, we'll be back. Eh? Well, Jimmy and I can tell some European stories uh, back in the day too because people love to hear the stories about uh, us travelling over there and how hard it is to make money and grind it out and drive, wouldn't they, Jimmy? Just love that. Yeah, it was. It was. It was an interesting time. <laughs> All right, well, let's make that. Let's make that part two. We'll get you to share the best half a dozen stories that you got between you. Thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Good on you guys. See you okay. later. Brett Ogle. Brett Ogle joining us on Inside the Ropes. Let's go back inside the ropes with Golf Australia. Welcome back to the show. He is a he is a, a ball of energy. Uh, he's a man of many uh, strings to his bow, Fred Ogle. Uh, Clates, what, what's the worst case of the yips you've ever seen? Who, who in your time in the game have you seen engulfed by it worse than any other? In a single round, the worst I ever saw was Peter Senior at Royal Queensland in the 1980. For Queensland Open, he hit, a, he hit a beautiful shot off the back of the old fourth hole, the par three, pin in the back, just went off the back. It was on an upslope, maybe a 30-foot chip shot, and he hit his ball 20 yards back down the other side of the – on the fairway, 20 yards short of the green. <laughs> they completely flinched-yipped it, and a 30-foot shot went 60 yards, and he did it a couple more times. He finished up, he, he, was, he was on the walk-in in the bunker on the floor and told me he putted it. The only way he could get on the green was to putt it. He was wow. like, he said, what am I going to do? I said, he said, I can't play. I mean, he was hitting the ball beautifully, as he always did. And he came out, the, that was late in that year. He came out the next year cross-handed, chipping cross-handed. And he figured it out. He figured a way out. And Langer figured a way out with it. But Langer's putting imps were horrendous. Saw him at a three iron to 15 feet maximum at the 18th hole of the Belfry and hit it 25 feet past. I mean, the yips is not just jerking a three-footer and missing it. That's a proper yips is what Senior and Langer had where you've got no control of what the club's doing. And you, and you, and you I mean, Senior hit a 30-foot shot 60 yards. Langer hit a 15-foot putt maximum 40 feet. And then with the driver, probably... Uh, Robert Lee, Finchy, Chook. Uh, I've seen those guys hit it just sideways off the chart with a driver. So, so the putting imps is the least bad of the yips, really. 
you can survive that a little bit, but chipping yips and driver yips are what drives guys out of the game. Aussie Moore was terrible with the chipping, which is why Aussie always played well in Melbourne because he was either in a bunker yeah. or a putt. Yeah. So, so he was great out of bunkers, and he was a he, and he turned into a he could putt the ball from anywhere up up within you know four or five feet, six feet, but couldn't chip to save his life. So, so I would say the, the worst I saw was Senior and Langer. And they both, amazingly, had careers longer than almost any, any of their contemporaries. I was going to say, I mean, you talked, was that 84 you said that about that, Senior? That was 80, it was 82 for Langer. And, and Senior and was... For, and 84 so, for Senior. So you think about the golf that those two men have, and the, the tournaments they've won and the money they've won subsequent to these, the onset or the, the delivery of the yips to yeah. their game. That, that is absolutely speaks volumes for the mental capacity of those two men. Well, how to find a way. You know, see, I mean, Pete just, I mean, Pete was completely unplayable. He couldn't play. He couldn't get the ball on the green. The simplest of shots, and he couldn't get the ball on the green. And he came out the next year and, and just was chipping cross-handed. And I mean, we've seen how many putting methods Langer's had. They just find a way to get it done. So, so Clayton, what do you do? What, what do you do uh, as a pro when, you, when, you're in, when you're in the heat of battle and you're seeing this happen to one of your mates or opponents or content, whatever you want to use? What, 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 what's the, what do you do? You look the other way or what, what, how do you, what well, do you do? Well, that day with Pete, we sat out in the clubhouse and he was just despairing. He said, what am I going to do? I said, well, I don't know. You know, I can't, you know, I might think now it's a – chipping gifts often come to guys who – play on, learn to play out of bad lies. I mean, no one ever had the chipping hips in Melbourne when we were chipping off power. Because if you duffed it, the ball came up 10 feet short of the hole. But in Queensland, when you play with that really grainy cooch grass, if you duffed it, the ball just went a foot. Yeah. Just went like, so, so you finish up jamming the ball way back, you know, jamming the ball way back in your stance with your hands forward, just trying to, just trying to chop on it to, to catch the ball first. And that only encourages it. You really got to get the ball up in your stance and use the bounce and Get the shaft back to level, and so your instinct is completely wrong often. Uh, so, but you've just got to. I mean, some guys figure out find ways, and some don't. Chuck, Chuck was couldn't drive the ball on the world when he lost his game, and he just went down in New Zealand. And he just sat in the back of a driving range and got with Mel Tung to start with, who taught Cambo, and he just figured a way back because. You know, there's the old joke about welcome to the first team on the, on the first team. Peter Fowler playing out of sheer desperation, <laughs> and, <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, for Bernard and Chuck and and Pete Senior, that was the only way they knew how to make a make a living. You've never seen three guys love playing competitive golf more than those three guys. And, and again, here's Chuck. You talk about longevity when no one. No one's signed his card to more official rounds as a pro than Peter Fowler. And he's played more rounds as a pro than anyone ever. And, and, and all three of them have I mean, different levels of greatness. I mean, obviously, Bernard above Pete, who's above Pete Senior, who's above Chook. But guys have dealt with unplayable situations with their game at times and come out of it. How's, your, home, how's your homework yeah. going getting him on this podcast too, by the way? Is that Chook? Yeah. Uh, uh, let me write that down. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> it was funny. Leo Barber, who's the GM at Power Bram, is doing a series called Legend of the Links on YouTube. And he interviewed me and Cambo and Lance Phelps and uh, can't remember who else. But so I can't get on a chook. Chook won't reply to me. And all of a sudden, after about eight weeks, you know, a message pops up on his phone. I'm ready to go tomorrow. Sure. <laughs> so I'm not sure if he's done chook yet, but um, yeah, chooks. Anyway, um, is it Clayton? Is it inevitable? that uh, if you play this game for long enough, you know, for a living, you know, under that sort of pressure, is it inevitable? How many, how many out of 100% of players who play the game for a long time professionally, how many of them will have a, a moment in their career where the, the onset of doubt and the, the thought that it's getting away from me and I'm losing this, is it inevitable that you go through that phase? Probably. I mean, I mean well, Seve's the other one. I mean, Seve was, couldn't drive the ball on the golf course at the end. It was terrible to watch him trying to play. Uh, Hank Haney thinks every single player on the PGA Tour has got the ifs with the putter, just to, just to varying degrees. He, he said every single player out there yips it. And, and I mean, obviously, there are Langer yips and there are, you know, there's, yip, there's kind of yipping a two, two-footer and missing it by an inch and tapping it in, but... Um, I think he's probably right. If your definition of one form of the yips is not being able to do on the golf course in the in the competition, what you can do on the practice putting green. So I get in the practice putting green, and I can make a perfect stroke, but I get on the golf course and I can't repeat it. You know, it's a complete, it's completely different. So, so if you want to call it the yips, then I've got the yips. But as Tony says, so, so is everyone else. Everyone just learns to deal with it. That's a really good. You know, it's, it's why these sportsmen who think they can take up pro golf because they're good players and they can shoot 69 around the club on Saturday. What they don't understand is that there's golf and tournament golf, as, as, as Bobby Jones famously said, there's, there's golf and there's tournament golf and, and, they, and the two don't bear much relationship to each other. So, so the key to being a successful tournament player is learning to play nervous. Mm. So, um, in fact, um, Hazy, speaking of that, this is, a, this is a segue way off track, and I'll, I'll, I'll be quick. Lynn Smiley was out with Elvis getting a lesson with Ian Triggs that day, and Ash Barty was there practicing golf. She said, gosh, she's, she's like five handicap and really good. So we'll get her down to play the Vic Amateur at the end of the year. So she's working on that. So if Ash, Barty, <laughs> so, so if Ash Barty's got nothing to do at the end of the year, uh, come down and play the Port Phillip and the Vic Amateur. How good's that? Which would be that cool. Be a coup? Yes, yes. So let's work on that. I said, get her down. She'd be great. She can come down with Elvis, play the, play the Port Phillip, play the Vic Amateur. I said, five handicap in the women's Vic Amateur is competitive if you play well. I don't reckon she'll have any worries standing up under pressure either, just quietly. Well, yeah, but, but my point to Liz was you've got to learn to play nervous. Well, that's, yeah, yeah. You know, so she's, as a, as a little girl, she learned to play tennis nervous. So, so she understood what happened to her body. When she got under the pressure, and, and she understood how that affected a, a server, a volley, or whatever, or a footwork, or how she moved, and, and she and she clearly knows how to play tennis when she's nervous. But that doesn't or, or that doesn't translate to knowing how to play golf nervous because because the reactions are completely different. Mm. But it would be pretty cool if we if if we could somehow drag her down to play. I'm not sure what the tennis schedule is like at the end of the year, but we should work on that, Hazy. Yeah, that's a great idea, and, and you know. Tennis is in just a bigger predicament as golf, if not bigger. So, um, you know, the logistics of running the Australian Open tennis are just 
you know, I can't, I couldn't even ma- imagine right now with the borders the way they are. So, who knows what they'll be doing? That's a good idea, Clayton. Hey, we'd better give a shout out to a couple of our mates. Uh, one, Martin Blake. We had Sandy Jamison on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about one club golf. Did you see uh, Blake? Blakey was very keen yesterday to maximise his 33 that he had uh, down there at Oakley. Uh, led the amateur leaderboard. Did we all see that on social media? He was I did plastered. say that. He was plastering it left, right, and centre. The big fella. So, I think, well, I think you and I better go down and break the course record in a couple of weeks, Harry. <laughs> I reckon you'll have me covered, but I'd love to have a game. I'd love to go there. Matias Sanchez was down there a week ago, and he uh, – so they've got the pros and the amateurs leaderboard that Sandy puts up at the end of the day, during the day's play, which uh, which is a great thing. So well done to you, Blakey. Uh, and the other one we need to mention, a couple of weeks ago we had Jed Morgan. We gave that one last push, Hazy, and uh, it's a very different-looking Jed Morgan that we saw uh, a day or two ago after the, uh, after the, the hairs come off. Oh, he's been completely scalped, the great man. Um, doesn't it look radically different too? Um, oh. Oh. Looks in a different weight category all of a sudden. But, yeah, he's done fantastically well. In these times, Andy, with all the problems that he's confronted, um, he's raised more than $10,000, which I just nice. think is an epic achievement. And, and, and also indicative of his standing in the golf community. I think people are already starting to rally around him, and he's a great young character. And yeah, no, that'll uh, that'll win him a lot of fans, I reckon, um, on the way through. Yeah, and I just want to just again double back to something we've done on the podcast, Andy. Last week we chatted with Tina Mayo, and I, I thought she was outstanding and loved the story, particularly with Stuart Appleby. I thought that was fantastic. Um, but she, as promised, um, gave free access to the webinar with Matt Griffin, the warm-up webinar um, during the week, and. Um, it's out on now on YouTube. So if you didn't catch it, if you can search on YouTube Golf Active Warm Up, and you'll see Tina Mayo and Matt Griffin going through the paces in about a 25 minute sort of, uh, you know, I guess Kickstarter for your round. And then the whole webinar is uh, you can access it via Coburg Osteopathy on YouTube. So. Uh, for those who didn't get the chance on Saturday morning but were interested after they heard the podcast, uh, go and check that out through Coburg Osteopathy on YouTube and you'll see that. It's, it's great. Well, you told us about your uh, pre-game routine, running from the car, laces undone, uh, hot dog in your hand, died, Coke Zero in the other hand, clubs hopefully over your shoulder. Clates, what do you do pre, pre-round? You, you, you've got a, a, a quarter past eight tea time at St Andrews Beach with Slattery and whoever you're playing with. What do you do pre... What's your warm-up routine look like? Walk onto the first tee and hit it. Right. In fact, Lucas, Michelle and Sue O and I played last Wednesday and we got on the first tee. No warm-up, first tee. Lucas didn't see where his ball went, but it finished up. He flushed it about 300 yards down the middle of the fairway. I felt like I'd never had a shot in my life. (laughs) And as wide as that first power at St Andrews Beach is, Sue lost the ball left. Right, up in the so, hill there, up on the... No, uh, left, yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we got... Well, and then I cold topped a seven iron. Couldn't believe it. Straight <laughs> on the ground, 30 yards. Third welcome, shot in the first hole. Welcome to uh, my world, Clayton. Yeah, so... Yeah, no, uh, but, cop that. Cop that, Clayton. <laughs> they, they got better. But, but it's amazing how quickly it comes back. I mean, I've played three times since... Like I wasn't away with it. It's fine. Mm, mm. So, so it comes um, back pretty quickly. How's the course looking down there? Looks 
Terrific. Perfect. In great shape. Great. I'm going to this soon. Um, any last words before we fare yeah, very well? Just a bit of finally a bit of good news, Andy, on the on the tournament scheduling front. Um, I will promise to check up more on what the Asia-Pacific amateur is going to look like because it's scheduled to be in Royal Melbourne and that's going to be in you know a hot talking point in the next few weeks as they try to figure that out. But a lot of the uh, state and national events are going to resume after July 1. Um, so information on the GA website about that. But for right now, things are cancelled on that front till June 30. But at the moment, as we stand, back up from July 1. Okay. That's um, that's encouraging. Uh, fellas, good to see you. Um, enjoy your week. I'll see you next week, Hazy. Awesome, Murray. And how good Brett Ogle. Love him. Yeah, he was awesome. Clades, lovely to see you again. Always Thanks, great Andy. to hear from you. Catch see you up. soon. See you, mate. Good on you. Thanks to Juzzy for making it all possible. Uh, this has been great to have, obviously, Ben Everill and Brett Ogle in particular on the show. Uh, this has been Inside the Robes, episode 164. We'll be back next week to do it all again. See you then.